Hey everyone, Trace here. Joe and I usually take this week off because of the holidays and whatnot, but we actually had an extra episode in the Horror Queers archives that we recorded back in October, and we thought we'd release it as a little holiday treat for all of you. The following episode on Tarsum Sings the Cell was recorded as part of the Night Stream Film Festival, which, because of COVID-19, was a virtual festival that combined the forces of five different horror fests across the country. This was a virtual broadcast as opposed to an in-person live appearance, but we still had a blast doing it. Also, since this was recorded as a special episode, we don't do our standard housekeeping at the end where we announce which film we're covering next week, so I'll go ahead and do that right now. Next week, Joe and I will be celebrating New Year's in style, and, along with hoping that 2021 is a vast improvement over 2020, we will be covering a film that is directly tied to the holiday. That film is the famed 1980 slasher Terror Train, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. So give that a watch over the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. to horror queers we're talking albino ducks and we're talking bondage couture and we're talking suspended masturbation and i'm joe and i'm trace and i'm we're talking um cranky intestine device things oh yeah yeah i thought you meant like <laughs> cranky old men and i was like oh i don't know this is the wrong movie <laughs> it's a double entendre because the machine is crank is a crank but the handler is cranky I will allow it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we'll yeah, do it. Yeah. We're talking Tarsum Sings the Cell, y'all, and it is um it's a movie celebrating its 20th anniversary this year and we're so 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 happy that the Nightstream Film Festival has allowed us to talk about it. Joe, this may be the most popular we've ever been, disc- appearing at five film festivals at once. <laughs> yeah, the thing that we never thought would happen. We got invited to all five. They just only happened to be one this year. <laughs> Yeah, so we would like to thank Nightstream Film Festival, which is of course made up of the Boston Underground Film Festival, the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival, the North Bend Film Festival, the Overlook Film Festival, and the Popcorn Frights Film Festival. Whew, thanks everyone. (laughs) We're happy to be here in our own home. Yeah, and of course for those of you who maybe don't know what Horror Queers is, A, thanks for clicking play on this, um... We are an LGBTQ podcast that looks at horror films through a queer lens, and we're part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Hence the tits. Tits tits up. (laughs) Yeah. Tits up. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So, you know, we have decided to discuss the cell, well, because, again, it was an opportunity for its anniversary, but also because... It's something that both of us, I'm pretty sure, really, really like and haven't... Well, I haven't revisited it in a bit. What about you, Joe? No, uh, when I went back to rewatch this for this, I realized I think it's been at least a decade, maybe mm-hmm. 15 years. It's 100% one that I saw in college, and I really enjoyed it then. But I think it's definitely a film that was maybe... I don't know if it was misunderstood or just underappreciated upon its release... But it's definitely one that I, I've seen more and more people lately kind of come into the fold and be like, oh, The Cell's actually a really good movie. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Awesome. 
Well, and I wonder if part of the reason that people didn't love it is that it was coming. I mean, it's just a 2000 film, but it's mm-hmm. really like a late 90s film in a lot of ways. And I wonder if it's because people at this point were just sick and tired of serial killer police procedural films. It, it, that very well may be the case. I mean, you know, the, it, it's. I'm fully aware of this film's flaws because it has quite a few. One of them is that the narrative is very just standard police procedural with an added sci-fi twist. But, you know, post-Silence of the Lambs, post-Seven, post-Copycat, like, it doesn't... I mean, CSI probably actually existed by this point. Maybe? I'm not really sure. Yeah. Eh. If not, it was on the horizon. Law and Order definitely did. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I think, yeah, maybe it was just something people weren't ready for. Of course... You have the accusations of the film being a lot of style over substance, and I won't disagree with that. I also don't think that that's a flaw. Like I, I don't either. Like I mean, there have been plenty of films that I've seen that are style over substance, but like the style isn't enough, or yeah. it comes across as quite masturbatory on the filmmaker's part. Right. That I don't really get the that I don't get that feeling from seeing in this movie. No, and. This feels like a big homecoming for him. If you think about the fact that he got his start as a music video director, you can see all of that style percolating. And we're going to talk a lot about the references and the, uh, um, I guess, where he's drawing influence from in this. But I think at the end of the day, this also feels like somebody's first big kick at the can, and he really wanted to showcase what he was capable of delivering. I would actually argue that the better Tarsum Singh movie is The Fall, which is the film Mm -hmm. that he made after this, which kind of blends both narrative and stylistic influences. But as a first go, I mean, I think he's playing within the genre tropes that people come to expect, but he's doing it with such visual flair. It's hard not to regard this as a a modern classic. I fully agree. And I I mean, again, besides the style over substance, you know, you had people and what's in because I haven't seen The Fall. Um, It's one that I always saw the case for in Blockbuster because it's such a distinctively designed film case. Mm -hmm. And did you know if he wrote that as well or did he just direct it? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he did, if only because it feels very him. Well, because one of the things I always laugh when people like they put it all on the director, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but. Tarsum's saying, like, if, if you want to accuse the film of being style over substance, that's totally fine. But the substance is from the script and the performances. Right. He didn't write this script. He did this not. script is written by Mark Pe- uh Oh my god. Protosevich. We're going to say Protosevich. Now, granted, this man has disowned this movie. Um, this is his first screen, like feature screenwriting credit. Um, he basically said that the film barely resembles his original script, which went under several rewrites from uncredited screenwriters and the executives at Warner Brothers and New Line. So he wasn't proud of the final result. Right. Uh, and he actually wants the film to get a remake. To the, and to that I say, no. No. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just to backtrack quickly, Tarzan Singh is one of three screenwriters on the fall, along with Nico Soltanakis, don't know, and Dan Gilroy. Should I know Dan Gilroy? Uh, yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> also known as the writer of... Nightcrawler, and your favorite film, Velvet Buzzsaw. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I really want to see The Fall now. But, okay, well, so going back to Mr. Protosevich over here, it might shock you to know that he, because when I saw his filmography, I was like, okay, because I think you and I talked about this offline, that the, the characters in this film are 
for the most part, not super fleshed out. I wouldn't go as far to say they're one-dimensional, like there's a little bit more to them than that, but this is definitely, again, it's more about the visuals than it is about the interior, well, <laughs> I was going to say the interior lives of these characters. But... <laughs> the literal interior lives. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was like, okay, well, let's, let's look at what this guy's done. The film he did after this is the 2006 remake of The Poseidon Adventure, which also has paper-thin characters that are fucking terrible. So he also ended up uh, writing I Am Legend, the Will Smith movie, and that's not really one that I particularly care for. I fucking hate it. And then he also wrote the screenplay for for Spike Lee's remake of Old Boy. Those are his big credits. Those are not great credits. I would argue that the old boy remake is his best. I don't hate the remake. It's just, it's very much an example of like, why are you doing this? Because there's just not much that's different about it. But again, when you watch it, you're like, well, this isn't really his screenplay. Like, this is definitely the original uh, screenwriter's work that he just adapted a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Made it a a smidge American, right? (laughs) But it just makes me laugh, you know, because this is a movie that like, I guess maybe it's like from a writing standpoint... It's not the same. We'll never know because we don't have the original script in our hands. Right. But as a final product, I think it's a fantastic film. And it's definitely one that the box office was, you know, pretty much. Well, hey, let's just dive into that. Do thing. it. The Cell is released on August 18th of the year 2000. The year of our Lord, 2000. <laughs> and it is released by New Line Cinema. We've got a runtime of 107 minutes unless you are watching the Blu-ray, which came out five years ago, um, which is the quote-unquote director's cut. It is about two minutes longer and basically what's longer about it is the, yeah, the uh, the suspended <laughs> masturbation scene. And I was really upset because I have the DVD. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, no, you haven't seen the wank. Okay. No, it was basically where he suspends himself on his piercings and, you know, masturbates over the corpse. And we'll talk about that in more detail as we get to that scene. But they had snipped some of it for fear of getting an NC-17 rating. Weirdly enough, it didn't get the NC-17 rating, and then they had to cut it. They just cut it for fear of the, of like being branded initially an NC-17 rating. Right. I mean, we've heard of this before, right? Where you shoot for more gore, more sexual violence, and so on. And then you say, okay, well, now we've got content to cut. But then every once in a while, the MPAA falls down on their fucking conservative jobs, and they don't ask for the cuts. And I'm always confused when production still make the cut as a result you're like just keep it in there you got away with it i th- I mean it even goes back to like doing uh okay i think it was scream too right where they intentionally filmed scenes that yeah. were gorier so they would like because with the, without the intention of using the gorier scenes that way when the mpa gave them the nc-17 they could cut it down to get an r which is with the footage they were originally going to use yeah but yeah so it wasn't until 2015 that this extra cut was available so i didn't get to watch this version did you I mean, I definitely saw him furiously masturbating, so I'm going to assume yes. Well, no, it that scene is in my cut, but it's just longer in the director's cut, so I don't know. Hmm. How would I know about a longer masturbation scene? <laughs> I tried to find clips and I couldn't find it. <laughs> but this film was given a budget of $33 million, and like Ow. you said, this is, this is Tarsem Singh's feature directorial debut. He mostly came from the world of music videos, and that's not a surprise given the look of the film. Yeah. And we've discussed this before, uh, but it's, it's always kind of a crapshoot whenever you have someone that moves from music videos to feature film, and... I do, I mean, there's a lot of inspiration from that here, from, be it his own music videos, but also a lot of others as well, and we'll go into those, but I just wonder if maybe that was something that critics were holding against it at the time? Uh, 
Yeah, I think even nowadays, whenever you see people like, oh, well, they got their start in music videos, there's a weird predisposition to saying, well, it's going to be all style over substance, or mm, this person's not going to be able to handle a narrative. <laughs> and there's a weird judginess considering some of the more high profile directors that actually got their start in music videos. Like, shockingly enough, we're quick to judge as a society, and we don't always love our music video directors. Yeah. So uh, basically the cell opens and it opens at the number one spot with $17.5 million. So I was there opening weekend. I was 11 opening weekend. So I was not seeing this movie in theaters. <laughs> Could you imagine though? Uh, I would argue it's actually not that bad. There's like a couple of things that are very disturbing for kids, but... I mean, I think the masturbation scene takes place 15 minutes into this movie. I think that's pretty, like... Oh, is that the litmus test? <laughs> I think that's the litmus test. <laughs> yeah, it goes on to grow 61.3 million domestically with a worldwide total of 42... Oh, sorry, with an international gross of 42.8 million for a worldwide total of $104 million. Not bad. Yeah, I mean, it's almost three times its budget, which I think is pretty much, like, the metric for people to say a film is successful is when it earns three times its budget. Hmm. So... It's fine. I, I Unfortunately, Singh hasn't really gone on to match the success, at least financially, of this film. Because I think The Fall had a pretty, um, oh, like, it, not... No. It was disastrous. <laughs> I don't even know if it got a wide release, to be honest. I don't think it did. And it was one of those ones, I didn't know it was him. And I, again, when I saw the case in Blockbuster, I was just like, oh, that's just, like, some weird art film. Which, you know, I'm sure it, it is. But... kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and then he would go on to do, I think, 20, it's 2011's Immortals, which I have not seen, but I've heard is hot garbage. Oh, it, it, there's your example of style over substance, because that movie is a shit, but it looks amazing. I mean, because it came out like post 300, and so I wonder if that was just kind of the vibe that everyone was going for with that. Yeah, yeah. Like, picture the costumes and the styling of this, only with like, shitty 300. Yeah. Yeah. His last notable film was Mirror, Mirror, the Snow White movie with Julia Roberts, which I actually yeah, kind like of it. enjoy. I like it. I, it's real stupid, but it's really funny. Um, and then it's he a very different audience, too. So. Yeah, it's totally a kid's movie. Imagine The Cell, but for kids, and with Julia Roberts. <gasps> a movie you could have seen at 11. <laughs> um, but yeah, he hasn't really done much since. He did a Ryan Reynolds movie called Selfless, and lately he's been doing Lady Gaga music videos with uh, the recent video for 911. So... There's that. Yeah. No. It's high, it's high profile. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. Like, let's be honest. There's probably more people watching a Lady Gaga music video than there was, like, The Fall. I think more people watched that video on opening day than more people saw The Fall in its entire first year of release. Right. So, in that case, maybe I should be less quick to judge because uh, <laughs> he's, he's probably doing pretty well. Um, I don't have much left to say regarding the production, other than, um, I mean, the costume design here. He hired Aiko Ishioka, who actually worked on Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola film. And you'll see that a lot in the muscle outfits like that they have to wear. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we're talking about comparisons to Silence of the Lambs, honestly, I mean, besides the narrative, they have the same composer. Howard Shore does the score for this film just like he did the score for Silence of the Lambs. And so I wonder, like, watching that today as I was cognizant of that fact, I was kind of like, ah. Like there's like there's parts with the FBI raid and right. the like of the helicopter shots where the score is highly reminiscent of the score from Silence of the Lambs, but overall it's like it's very much its own thing. I mean, here's the thing. So we talked about Copycat for the Salem Horror Fest last week, and if we're being honest, I think there's 
not a huge amount of creativity in the types of crime procedurals that are coming out at this time. So basically within about a 10 year span, like throughout most of the 90s, a lot of these films were kind of telling the same story. So it's not surprising to me that certain scores, certain sequences, like they all just seem to speak to one another. Or in the case of things like Copycat and La Selve, people just yeah. say, oh, well, you're doing a, a shittier version of Silence of the Lambs. It's it's whoever got the highest profile, which in this case was the Oscar winner who made Bank, mm-hmm. is then like the top dog and everybody just gets compared and nobody comes out looking good. But I think we also, as I said then, I think it's a disservice to films if we just constantly say like, oh, well, this movie is just like a shittier, more stylistic version of Silence of the Lambs. Like, well, it's probably not trying to be Silence of the Lambs. No, I mean, I I think that I'm sure that, oh my God, uh, with Protosevich, that's going to take me forever to memorize. I'm sure he maybe like worked on that as a base, like a base idea. But I mean, again, the police procedural is not like, Silence of the Lambs didn't invent that. (laughs) No, no. And, like, it'd be great if people maybe stopped giving it all the fucking credit for being a crime film. <laughs> I mean, there is a ticking clock aspect here. You do have a villain that is... I don't even... I don't... I hesitate to call him queer. But there are heavily... There's there's moments, you know, with his father calling him some gay slurs. And yeah. his propensity for playing with dolls as a child and doing housework and ironing stuff and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if the film is trying to do a shorthand way of saying, oh, this man is a, it's a gay man who has been abused and that's why he is the way he is. And we can talk about that as we get into those scenes. Yeah. But that that aspect does call to mind a bit of the problematic aspect of Silence of the Lambs with the Buffalo Bill killer. But I, again, I still don't, it, it's not so focused on that to where I'm like, that's what it is. I don't know. Right. Yeah. If nothing else, this film seems far less interested in really unpacking that. Um, I have had I have seen some people talk about how they don't love that this film makes excuses or apologize for Carl Starger's criminal behavior by suggesting like, oh, well, we should feel sorry for him or feel empathy because he was abused as a child. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's a bit of a shorthand way of reading this. If anything, I would say the films suggest that people are never just one thing like they they have multiple facets to their personalities and sometimes they battle and like there's an explicit reference of schizophrenia in here which suggests that he's got multiple competing identities and one of them is a king and one of them is a child well and i mean the film does bring up other like alternative viewpoints where someone's like well other people have been abused as well and they don't turn into like killers like this um i think maybe with the way the film ends maybe that's where the people are like oh the film is arguing that it's okay and i don't right i don't really necessarily subscribe to that or that the film is doing that but you know your mileage may vary different readings for different folks But yeah, so uh, that's really all I have to say. Do you want to kick us off with a plot summary? Absolutely. And for those of you who have never joined us before, the plot summary will be the remainder of the episode. (laughs) Yes, we will be (laughs) commentating. Sure, that's a word. On the plot summary (laughs) for the rest of the episode. (laughs) Okay, so we open with Catherine Dean, played by the one and only J-Lo, Jenny from the Block herself. And she is All right, wait, wait, wait. Okay. Let's just get this You want to get this over too. with right off the top? <laughs> I love Jennifer Lopez and people shit on her all the time all the so time. much because 
really after this movie, I think I think 2001 is when she did The Wedding Planner. And that's when she kind of entered her rom-com phase. Mm-hmm. But even before then, I mean, like, what? We're looking at Anaconda. We're looking at Selena. We're looking at Out of Sight. Mm-hmm. People constantly underestimate her. And I'm not going to speak to how she is as a person because there's a lot of rumors that she's like secretly a bitch or whatever. She's a bit of a diva. Which, you know what? So is Mariah Carey and people don't give her shit. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe they do. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Here's the thing. If you're this kind of global superstar, maybe you're also allowed to be a bit of a diva. It's what we do as a culture. (laughs) I think that's fair. But also, people tend to not like her as an actress. And I feel like this is the film, at least in the horror community... Because people, people, like, I mean, we love Anaconda, but people don't go to Anaconda and say, oh, she gives, like, a fantastic performance in that movie. <laughs> yeah. But, and I'd argue she's fine in this movie. She She's working with not a lot of character. But she is an actress who I think is able to elevate mediocre material to, like, or even terrible material to watchable. Now, granted, if you want, like, a five-star film from her, go watch Out of Sight. It, she's fantastic in that. Or Hustlers. You can watch something shitty, like... Oh God, the backup plan, which is a shitty movie, but she's so charismatic that it just makes it borderline watchable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that that's very much the thing. This is maybe her least successful outing as an actress, if only because she doesn't have something really powerful to work with. Like she's constantly being upstaged by the visuals. And I would even add D'Onofrio because he gets all the fun kind of showy stuff to do. But like, It's not like she is a detraction from this film either. Like, she's doing what she needs to do. She's highly watchable. She doesn't give a bad performance. It's just not, like, a super, super exciting performance. But I would also argue that's who the character is. Like, she's a child psychologist. She's just there to try to help this kid. Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) What are people expecting? (laughs) So basically, if you're watching this and you're like, man, I I really like the cell, but I fucking hate J-Lo, leave. (laughs) yeah just get the fuck out now (laughs) (laughs) all right sorry i do that out of the way go go good 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 (laughs) so we are introduced to her this is all silent so she is riding a black horse she's wearing this feathery white gown across the desert this is shot in africa and it looks fucking gorgeous it's absolutely stunning you're let into like what kind of a movie you're about to watch like Mm -hmm. almost right off the bat yeah and i would argue that this opening scene is quite smart because not only does it tell you okay you can expect amazing visuals and kind of weird uncanny surreal dream logic but also it's like hey this is what this machine can do at this Campbell Institute so it's like here's your primer and then we'll get into the crime procedural shit in a little bit just bear with us right okay so with all that said, you know, yeah, uh, she meets a boy, she tries to help him, he turns into a little bit of a monster and runs away, and she gets fed up and she exits out of this kind of VR simulation program. Makilak. Makilak. I, I wish that the the, uh, the boogeyman would have taken on, like, a more actual physical appearance as opposed to just, like, morphing the boy's face. Do you want a Babadook? Sure. So at this point, we are introduced to our doctor characters. This is Dr. Miriam, played by Marianne Jean-Baptiste, as well as Dr. Barry, played by Dylan Baker, in a non-scary, threatening, weird role. It's very I know. odd <laughs> to see him this when, way. <laughs> oh, because like, when was Happiness? Happiness was like 95, 96, when he's playing the pedophile? Uh... 
gosh, maybe. And then yeah. we would have had Trick or Treat in and around this time period where he's playing a serial killer. Well, that would have been like seven years later, but sure, sure. <laughs> no, Trick or Treat is like... 2007. Fuck, is it really? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> time is a flat circle it's the beauty of uh, a video y'all of live conferencing we can't actually um look this shit up so anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah so basically at this point we find out that they're working in the center that is doing these experimental kind of comatose vr simulation treatments and Catherine is a child therapist and she's been working with this child that we saw in the dream he is comatose. He's got billionaire parents who are funding this whole project. They are played by Patrick Bouchow. Probably got that wrong. But mm-hmm. uh, And also Masetta Vander. Did you recognize okay. her? I, I did. But wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so I, I recognize her as Sindel from yes. Mortal Kombat Annihilate. Okay, good. Correct. <laughs> Gay. I, I, I saw her face and I was like, she kind of, because she reminded me of um the the wife and Mr. Robot. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because she has like, really like just like striking features. And so I looked mm. up and I was like, oh, it's Sindel from yeah. that shitty movie. Yeah. <laughs> Not the good Mortal Kombat, folks. The bad Mortal Kombat. <laughs> she gets two lines in this movie. I mean, basically yeah. these parents are here to be like, we're going to take our funding and our sick comatose child because you have delivered zero results in 16 months or 18 months. Yeah. And she's like, oh, they don't like me. I'm a failure. Maybe I should practice my skills on this comatose serial killer guy now correct me if i'm wrong though so the boy is comatose though because he also has the same type of schizophrenia that the killer has oh i i did not catch that part but if so what a coinky dink i i I, so yeah i thought that too um and i was like oh that's really coincidental that they happen to get a killer that has the same fucking problem in the same (laughs) geographical like proximity because they all it all happens in one day folks They've only gotten until the end of the day until that tank fills up with water. Maybe that was Protosevich. He was like, they just really like streamlined my entire complex screenplay. It's, I'm, I'm disowning it. In my screenplay, it was two days. Not one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we... Let's see. We also have our introduction to Carl Starker, who was played by Vincent D'Onavrio. He's got an absolutely atrocious 2000s haircut um it's a wig is it a wig okay it is a wig full-on described it as a bob in my notes <laughs> i mean you can kind of tell because he's bald as king starker and that this was pretty is, natural yeah, i i so my only point of reference for vincent d'onofrio at the time this would have come out would have been men in black um and so oh, i okay I, well, he's the bug he's like the creepy bug with the human skin suit and that's it like that that's it (laughs) so i just know him as playing creeps yeah i mean i don't know what my point of reference would have been obviously he's like vincent fucking denabrio he's had a storied career he's gone on to do tons of things but it's weird i don't know if you ever get this when you watch films that you don't think they're that old like this movie doesn't feel 20 years old to me and that's partially just because you know you get to a certain age and time doesn't make a lot of sense anymore but yeah i a hundred percent was like oh he's young and fit in this movie yeah. and i'm kind of used to seeing like older plumper jollier vincent d'onofrio <laughs> um yeah he also doesn't get a ton of dialogue in this movie but i would argue his performance informs enough of what we need to know about this crazy crazy person yeah he's quite captivating i would argue in both of his roles like even when he's just playing a regular human being 
quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And then obviously everything to do in this dreamscape is fucking fascinating. Yeah. So he arrives at this deserted shack in the middle of the desert, and he's got his albino dog, Valentine, with him. Very cute. (laughs) And he is greeted by the sight of a dead woman who is suspended in a tank filled with water. So, okay, this is a really funny story that I kind of love. So apparently, like, this woman, like, she... No, I know, I know. I was like, where is this this going? (laughs) This corpse. (laughs) No, so apparently, like, this woman, like, someone had to audition to be this corpse. Like, absolutely. Like, she had to, like, be be really comfortable with water. She's great at doing it. Mm -hmm. The woman who ends up being captured, who is, like, in the cell for the whole movie... She, he asked her, like, oh, are you comfortable being underwater? Can you swim? And she was like, yeah, I'm great. I'm a lifeguard. But she couldn't be underwater without holding her nose at all. Right. And it really pissed him off. Tarsum Singh, by him, I mean, not, not Vincent D'Onofrio. And Singh takes, like, no less than three jabs at her in the commentary of this film. And then in a deleted scene, which is one of hers, she goes, oh, yeah, I had no reservations about cutting anything with this woman. Like, <laughs> wow. Because <laughs> he was I... like... He, well, because he said, like, oh, like, you know, someone can, you'll say, oh, can you ride a horse? And you'll, they'll say yes. That's just what actors do. And they'll just go learn to ride a horse. But don't say you're a jockey. And, like, so don't be like, oh, I, I was a lifeguard. I'm an expert swimmer. And then have to hold your nose like this when you're swimming underwater. <laughs> yeah, that is a little bit strange. And particularly because, like, one would argue, like, if you know how to swim, if you know how to hold your breath, it's not the hardest of skills like i would argue learning to horseback ride would be way harder and way more of an ask so uh, then just the whole, yeah so that's why we don't actually get a lot of footage of her in this film because he just didn't want to shoot it you know what i'm kind of fine with it the taste that we get of her it's doing what it needs to do but i also don't need to see like long sustained takes of this woman suffering and yeah. crying like i i got it I can move on. <laughs> to be honest, like every moment that's spent in the real world in this movie, I'm like, less of this, more of well, the dream stuff. I actually clocked it. So everything that's in the mind, it takes up barely, just barely over a third of the movie's runtime. Really? Re- like really. It's about a oh. hundred and uh it's an hour and forty two minutes without credits at the end, and the it's about like thirty five no, it's not well, I whatever it's it's about 35 percent of the runtime is the mind stuff and it's it's fascinating though which also kind of goes to show though how little impression the Mm -hmm. non-mind scenes make as opposed to the ones that take place in in the mind of the killer yeah oh there there's full-on like a sustained conversation between j-lo and vince vaughn and i just got up and went to the bathroom and came back and realized oh i should have paused it and then i was like meh (laughs) <laughs> oh well we'll see which conversation that was because it might have been the important one. <laughs> oh, it's probably the important one yeah 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 yeah, yeah. okay so we cut back to Catherine at this campbell institute and she is arguing that the reason that they haven't found success with this child is because she always has to go into his mind so she proposes this experimental unorthodox procedure and the other two are like a fuck no this is like way too risky and also you're kind of new at this so maybe take it down a notch and um these early scenes are really kind of character based like it's to get the sense that she's young she's a little bit impulsive she wants to prove herself she doesn't have like a very substantial home life like we see her at her apartment 
she's just hanging out like watching tv <laughs> kind of eating microwavable meals <laughs> so it, it this scene is actually replicated in the wedding planner when she's like this like fancy wedding planner and she goes home and she just has her perfect frozen dinner that she eats on a tv tray like like all these j-lo rom-coms have like what is her normal life at home like and i just yeah. love that the cell has that too <laughs> I also love that they probably had to sit J-Lo down and be like, so this is what a normal person does. (laughs) Like, there's no pink toilet paper and there's no butlers and your the apartment that you live in will be the size of two people shoulder to shoulder. And J-Lo's just like, no, I don't get it. What? How does this work? (laughs) Like, Where's the bell that I ring to have food delivered? exactly so these scenes are all kind of like hey this is this is Catherine. you should care about her she's got a waterbed so she's similar to the killer okay (laughs) um water is a big motif in this movie i also love when they're explaining his schizophrenia that pruitt taylor vince is like oh yeah sometimes the trigger can be water-based like it's usually (laughs) water-based okay yeah that's also the title of my sex tape but um (laughs) i don't need to go there water-based water-based so, uh, this these scenes are intercut with Carl doing his at-home routine, which is dressing bodies, you know, washing them in bleach, uh, sterilizing them, and then suspending himself in the air so that he can watch footage of this woman dying and masturbating over her corpse. This, I mean, okay, I know I said at the beginning that, like, you know, the, the opening, like, lets you know the movie you're in for right away. Um, mm-hmm. This scene is probably the one that does that the most. I don't understand. Why would you say that? It's a bold choice to have this scene 15 minutes into your film. Yeah. I've never experienced suspension before, and I can't really speak for the portrayal of it. I mean, it is accurate, like, based on just the image of it. But okay. I do wonder how the BDSM community feels about seeing it portrayed, like, again, with a killer as opposed to like because a lot of it, it has more of um i mean in the bdsm world it's used to create a heightened sense of vulnerability and inescapability okay. um because you just have this feeling of weightlessness but then for some people it can be like it, it can be object objectifying or you know give you a sense of submissiveness or erotic helplessness okay. um which is good um or even people do it as performance art in fetish themed yeah. nightclubs yeah I find it fascinating that it's that it's used in, well and that it's used in this way because it adds the sexual element to it. Now, it, you of course it can be that, but it's not necessarily a requirement. So that we do get this shot of him masturbating over the bleached doll-like corpse of his previous victim. I think it's a cool mo. Like in terms of serial like, sure. like serial killers and film goes, like it's really memorable. But it's also like, whew, I don't know. Yeah, um, I can definitely see people taking issue with this, if only because it immediately codifies him as, oh, okay, well, if you didn't think he was a bad guy, he's also a weirdo sexually. So there's very much, there's a judgy tone to it, I find. Mm -hmm. Like stigmatizing the fetish, right? Exactly. So I imagine if you were someone who was stepping outside of the, you know, norm in terms of your sexual practice and you weren't super vanilla... You might look at this and be like, oh, so I'm basically on the sliding scale towards deviancy and murdering women and treating them like dolls, according to this movie. So I can understand why people would take offense. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, otherwise, as a casual viewer, um, it's shocking. Yeah. I fully didn't remember this. I remembered that he had the rings in his back, but I didn't remember him masturbating. It was kind of like, oh, okay. 
We're also leaving out the fact that he's watching the video footage of her drowning and crying for help. So it's mm-hmm. like the combination of like him having like him literally being over the corpse of his victim, who is made to look like a doll with the bleach skin and everything, yeah. while also like still being able to hear her suffer. So there's an added component to that. So yeah. it may even just be that it's more the suffering that he's getting off onto than the actual act of suspension. But yeah, know, we'll never know. We won't know. You could make the argument one way or the other, or both. Mm-hmm. Why not both? <laughs> so, uh, after the scene, the body is discovered by FBI agents Peter Novak, who is played by Vince Vaughn, as well as his partner, Gordon Ramsay, your friend, Jake Weber. And uh, it's also fun that they've got character actor Dean Norris from Breaking Bad, long before Breaking Bad was ever a thing. Totally forgot. Um, also, my my Jake Weber, I, I, I only know him from Medium because I actually watched Medium. <laughs> yeah, you and grandmothers across the country watched Medium, Trace. That's why he is yours. Star- hey, starring future Oscar winner Patricia Arquette, okay? I don't know what to tell you. I can't remember. It was one episode, but I definitely confused Medium with Ghost Whisperer, didn't I? Yes, 100%. And yeah. they, were, they were, I think, same, same concept, similar concept, different networks. NBC right. for one, CBS for the other. Yes. And both surprisingly successful. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, they went on for a long time. Um, All this to say, I do actually also enjoy Jake Weber. He's the kind of person where I don't know that he pops on screen. He definitely looks like he should be playing somebody's husband every time you see him. But I don't know. He's he's a welcome, familiar face in this movie. Like this, this film is kind of filled with character actors and then also Vince Vaughn, but like in a tolerable sense. I, but my, my thing is, I mean, yeah, Vince Vaughn is fine in this movie. Um, I mean, this is like two years after he did Psycho. Ooh. I don't think you need two cops. I think that no. you could have gotten rid of the Jake Weber character, but yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. Even the, the moment late in the film when they call up this Cole character and they're like, go in the basement, look for the insignia. You're like, we don't need that. We've already no. made the visual connection. <laughs> There's, there's no point, but eh, whatever. There's so there. many men in this movie. <laughs> I mean, if if he got killed later in the film, maybe I would get it. You know, like Jeff Daniels in Speed. Mm-hmm. But we don't get that. He's just no. alive. Yeah. Let's be honest. Like, pretty much nobody dies in this movie. There's like yeah. a woman who's already dead. And then Vincent mm-hmm. Tanabri at the end. That's it. Yeah. And both. Of, well, and the end one is a mercy kill. So, yeah, exactly. Okay, so uh, so they find the body, and this these scenes are now intercut with them sort of like trying to capture his MO, and then we also see Carl, he's already on the prowl, so his MO is also that he is escalating as a serial killer. So he's looking at his next victim, Julia Hickson, who is played by Tara Subkoff, she of the lifeguard who can't swim. <laughs> I this setup. I like the setup though. I mean, the way he's got this dog set to just like act dead, perfect. Yeah, as somebody who doesn't own a dog and has never owned a dog, I was like, can you really train a dog to look like it's been run over and make the whiny noises? That is, that's alarming. Dogs used for bad purposes makes me uncomfortable. But again, that's reminiscent. I mean, again, we're going back to Sounds of the Lands. It's reminiscent of the scene when Brooke Smith gets captured in the van. So very much so. You know what? This is Sounds of the Lands. Let's just sound it's it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. 
Yeah, so he abducts her, and the FBI almost immediately zeroes in on him. It's kind of funny just how quickly they manage to catch him, considering how alarmed they are that his MO is that he's escalating. It's like, eh, well, you got him in the next scene. So they end up breaking into his house because they have tracked him by his albino dog hair. So, you know, burgeoning serial killers go for a generic dog. Try not to get a really unusual dog. It's going to get you caught faster. Three years ago, he bought an albino German Shepherd from this breeder, and we found her, and we got his name. But I think this is a really good subversion of the trope, though, because, yeah, they find him, like, in the first act of this movie. It's great. Yeah, it's not what you would expect at all. Um, Right. But, of course, before they can actually get him... He is in the bath. He has a traumatic trigger and he tries to use his pills, which we never really find out what they are, but they're probably some kind of like anti-hysteric or calming sedative. I don't know. And uh, he he doesn't have any. He's fresh out of pills. So he ends up collapsing and they discover his comatose body, much like the boy from the opening scene. So they get a diagnosis from Dr. Reed, as you said, Pruitt-Taylor-Vince. I did love that Tarson Singh apparently cast Taylor Vince because of his iconic, like, twitching eye feature. And then the studio was like, no, it's distracting and funny. Get rid of him. There were a lot of studio notes for this film, also with test audiences, I think. Um, And we'll talk about that a bit more when we get into Catherine's backstory, because they changed a major aspect of that for the film. Yes. Yeah. Maybe for the best. We'll see. I don't... Yeah, Yeah. we'll see. I disagree. So Dr. Reed, you know, more or less gives them the the exposition of this is what this guy has. It's a rare form of Alzheimer's where he is now comatose. He will likely never wake up. So you fucked. This woman is going to die in this automated cell, (laughs) which will fill with water in 24 hours. Stop the clock. Yeah. how, How do they know the timeline? Is there an explanation for that? I think they figured out how long she had been submerged in the water, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then oh, they maybe were like, so. oh, okay, this is how long she was taken before she then turned up dead. Yeah, because they keep mentioning how the, the timeline between the body discoveries and capturing the woman, the disappearance is like keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Yep. And they're really dead set on thinking that he really wants to be caught. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we don't get any of that because we don't really know anything about Carl. He says nothing, and then he goes into a comatose state. Yep. Yeah. So they say, okay, uh, what the fuck are we going to do? Because if not, this lady is screwed. And Dr. Reed is the one who helpfully says, oh, well, you should reach out to this Campbell Center. They've only got this one billionaire patient. So you could probably ask them to do your dirty work in a 12-hour period. And off we go. There we go. There we go. Super convenient. So they make a presentation. They basically guilt trip j-lo into doing that well, no so dylan baker is like oh yeah sh- do, do it not my body and yeah. then marion jean baptiste is like um i think we should it, it's really up to her <laughs> let's maybe not speak for women's bodies dylan baker <laughs> you fucking asshole it no it, it's i mean of course like Catherine's like well i mean like it's not really possible but is it possible i mean i guess anything's possible okay cool let's do it yeah like i'm not i do like that she kind of says um, so he's like a serial killer, right? Uh, do you think he would have given you the information? Because why do you think me, a vulnerable, young, very attractive woman, is going to be able to appeal to this serial killer? Like, I was kind of surprised that Vince Vaughn's character, Peter, doesn't go, maybe we should bleach her hair before we send you in, since he seems to like women like with that. her hair. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god, can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really matter. We're meant to believe that she doesn't have control over how she looks when she goes into the dream state anyway. It's all Carl who kind of dresses her based on what he wants her to be in that given moment. So, I mean, again, so we enter the dream now. I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a dream. And I think Singh was too. Like, It's so easy to call it that. But they were, because dream logic is something that they were trying to avoid, I think, narratively. And so okay. I just, I don't know, it's the mind or whatever. But it's 40 minutes into the film. So what we have just described is the first 40 minutes. There's an hour left of this movie. <laughs> and we will talk for the full hour. <laughs> yeah, I think I call it either dream or subconscious. Because really, like, she, she yeah. is. She's going into his mind and he's not conscious. So like, unconscious, subconscious, whatever. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you can draw comparisons to the movie Dreamscape. I, I mean, I, I, because it's more horror-based, I was totally going for Nightmare on Elm Street this entire time, especially with some of the tropes we'll see later. Uh, that's good, yeah. I mean, I think whenever you have people go into a dream, it's like, all right, which of the three films are you going to maybe right. reference or try to avoid referencing? Yeah, exactly. Which is surprising, because it's such a fertile place to to go narratively and visually right i mean i would argue that the cell is a better nightmare on elm street sequel than some of the nightmare on elm street sequels <laughs> oh my um yeah not gonna disagree with that <laughs> we'll we'll talk offline which ones you yeah. think it is better than <laughs> we'll see who's cursing me out right now <laughs> right yeah <laughs> freddy's dead oh i love that one so um immediately the whatever you want to call it, the dream logic, the crazy heightened visual kicks in. Well, and we immediately are taken to a baptism. And I don't know about you, but this resonated with me a lot. Um, and this is kind of where I'm going. Oh, well, this is kind of where I'm going, though, with the queer story. I, mean, I don't, again, I don't know if I read Stargirl as queer. I don't know if I do. But given what seems to be either like a Pentecostal type religious background with him and his family, like, it just seems like, you know, Growing up super Catholic, I was just kind of like, oh, like this, mm -hmm. like, I mean, it was not that it was not the Pentecostal stuff. And when I was baptized, it was a baby. I was a baby and it was like not being drowned. <laughs> right. So you weren't in the woods. You weren't wearing like old timey clothes. <laughs> right. And granted, it can also be kind of seen as like just kind of service level. Oh, well, he, like, he had a really bad religious upbringing, which led to abuse. And that's Correct. why he's insane. Yep. And that is what it is. The film doesn't seem interested in diving further into that. No. Other than just saying that's what it is. Yeah. But as someone who just did have kind of a, a slightly stricter religious background, if not quite as strict as what this film is portraying, I felt a bit more empathetic mm -hmm. towards him. But again, like, is that a problem? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because had it just been this scene and we were just left to believe that it was a religious thing, then I think it would be a very different interpretation. But then we get added physical abuse that is almost sexualized right so mm -hmm. i kind of looked at this as oh the triggering point is that he had this negative experience but really it's all tying back to the abuse he suffers at the hands of his father which right maybe doesn't have a religious connotation at all but because we see them linked in this film we kind of end up having to put them together yeah yeah exactly yeah, so we get this baptism, it then becomes inverted, so we're seeing it upside down, and then Catherine wakes up, she's in a damp sewer, and we get blood droplets that are falling in slow motion. A lot of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I was watching a lot of music videos at this time. Like I, I grew up on, we called it much video. It's basically what MTV was only here in Canada. We called it. Oh, okay. I thought it was like an era of music that I missed out. (laughs) No, (laughs) but this was the era for music videos. Like people were spending tons of money to promote songs and singles in video form. So like every Friday I would come home because I was a loser. I would sit down and I would watch like video countdowns, like the top 20 videos of the week according to the charts so you would watch all the yeah. music videos so like i vividly remember several of the music videos that sing is paying homage to or is drawing influence from like the marilyn manson video for um it's not the dope show it's beautiful people so the main Mar- marilyn manson ones are the ones that that were directed by floria sigismondi and that is for tourniquet and the beautiful people right yeah, I I vividly remember seeing the video for The Beautiful People all the time. Because not only was it a massive song, but that video ended up becoming iconic as a result. Interestingly enough, that director has since become a feature filmmaker. She's the one who directed The Turning from earlier this year. Oh! Which got accusations of style over substance. Yeah, well, because there was no substance because there was no third act in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, it has some problems with studio interference. Yes, 100%. (laughs) So, yeah, but we get this first, this immediate setting as she sees the young Carl Starger. This image of, like, the staircase is on the opposite sides of the room. That is H.R. Geiger. There's there's a portrait or a painting he did called Schacht, uh, Schacht, which um, I would say Swedish for something. (laughs) We did our research. (laughs) I I, I think uh, it's Schacht. Sorry, it's Swedish for Shaft. But it looks just like the stairs in the empty room. Yeah, I'll confess I got a little bit of like M.C. Escher, Leviathan from Hellraiser Mm -hmm. 2 as well, which is entirely possibly driven by things like Geiger as well. And now that we're talking Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, the fifth Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Dream Child, does have a whole scene. Or Actually, maybe it's it's New Nightmare um, when it's like, Nancy running upside down some stairs and stuff. It's either that or it's the fifth one. Yeah, I think it's New Nightmare. Yeah, I think it is too. I mean, it it makes sense, right? Because all of these images are so striking, right? Like, particularly because they're the kind of thing that you just can't see in real life or you will never see in real life. So it immediately conveys to you that you are in the realm of the fantastic. And I think it prepares you for some of the visual sites that we'll see where we say, oh, okay, the danger is real. Right. You have to be prepared for the unexpected. Because right after the scene is where we get the horse. Which, to me, it's the most iconic scene in the entire movie. It is. It's gorgeous. Um, I mean, even though once the horse is split, the CGI clearly kicks in. And it's still beating, and like the ears are twitching. Like, it's great. Um, that, of course, is a reference to... It's it's the works of British artist Damien Hirst. And there's a... It's basically one of his exhibits. It's not like a painting, but mm-hmm. it exhibits that were like, looked like the split horse. And, okay. of course, that was emulated later um, in Brian Fuller's Hannibal TV series. Yeah, which I would argue is actually one of its most striking visual images from the first season as well. Oh, 100%. I just wanted to ask, though, do you know who's playing young Carl Starger? I have his name. It is Jake Thomas. Is that the kid from Star Wars? No, he actually is most... I mean, he might be from Star Wars, I don't know. Oh, no, so that's Jake Lloyd. Um, Jake Thomas is mostly known for playing Matt McGuire on the Lizzie McGuire show. (laughs) Nope, 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 nope. Also, the Lizzie McGuire movie. He's Lizzie's younger brother. (laughs) 
So people who are new to the podcast, this is a way that Trace trolls me as regularly as possible. He somehow manages to find a way to bring the fucking Lizzie McGuire movie into a queer horror podcast and then delight I mean, in it. Lizzie McGuire, that, that movie and show are super queer and her brother is totally gay. Um <laughs> Not, probably not actually, but Ouch. yeah. Uh, so we have yet another connection to Lizzie McGuire <laughs> in no. one of our movies. <laughs> I refuse to acknowledge. No. <laughs> yeah. So she is chasing this boy around. He is obviously obsessed with like a particular frame of time. So in this case, we just think that it's, oh, this horse is going to be uh, dissected at a particular time, but we'll learn later that it's that his trauma is actually also associated with a particular time frame and uh he disappears this is where we go down in some herky-jerky transitions which were very of the time once again any of this camera motion gives me very like house on haunted hill dark castle vein <coughs> okay i was thinking of the so I, I like got so excited and, like, so excited <laughs> No, I, I was I, I was like, oh, this is very much a Castle Haunted Hill, which came out the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get to the cells, it's very much like 13 Ghosts is what I was thinking. But then I went and watched the fucking music videos that you that, that, that were inspired him. And specifically, it's the Nine Inch Nails one, Closer, which features a lot of this. Although Marilyn Manson's tourniquet also has like the, the doll figures that you see yeah. in all this. But yeah, it's... um, Ooh, yeah, this... this uh, this is all a lot. <laughs> I love the look of all this. I mean, it, it does feel very dark castly, and that this was in like a mainstream. I, I mean, again, I'm calling it a horror film, but this was marketed towards like it's a sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, I mean, we don't like the term elevated horror. It's a bullshit term. But if this was coming out today, it would probably be marketed as elevated horror, like something like that. Something you would see from an A24 release. Yeah, even yeah. though it's, I think, more accessible than that. <laughs> Wow, so dismissive of A24. <laughs> no, I, I love A24, but again, you, you can show a Joe Blow this movie and they'll probably like be into it. Whereas, you know, I'm not going to show a Joe Blow The Witch without being like, hey, so this is the type of movie we're about to watch, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people, we don't need to talk about A24 movies, but you're. <laughs> I do remember at the time when the reviews came out, that was one of the criticisms, though, was that it was very stylish. But also that it was kind of like, uh, it's trying so hard to be intellectual because it's going into people's minds. And it's, you know, it really wants to unpack things like Freudian and Lacanian imagery and stages Mm -hmm. of development. And you're like, "Uh, sure, but it's also about a woman who just goes into a serial killer's brain and has like a bunch of adventures. Yeah, I I don't think there's a lot of this. I don't think this movie has designs to make any grand statements about the human mind. I think, I mean, again... There is some stuff that's surface level. There's some stuff that digs a little bit deeper. But I mean, at the end of the day, like this is just more of a kind of a pulpy fun movie for me that mm. is for the most part fast paced and just a feast for the eyes. But I, I don't necessarily feel int- intellectually stimulated watching it. What's interesting is when you start to look at reviews of this film, like from more academically inclined critics, the place that they go is actually how identity becomes represented through costume. So that's really like where the bulk load of the work on this film has been done. It's not actually about like, like there's a little bit about Carl as like maybe a queer or like a sexually coded villain, but a lot of it is like, how do the costumes in this film represent who the characters are and like the way that they evolve? That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Okay, so we are back in this like automated showroom where we see representations of all the murders that Carl has committed. It's 
fantastic. Like visually, it's great. <laughs> I wanted more of this. Like I wanted like two more scenes of this at minimum. And that's like when the gate opens and like the bodybuilder woman comes mm-hmm. out and grabs her. Like that, that to me was like 13 Ghosts. But again, it's silly because 13 Ghosts came up the year after this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe 13 Ghosts took it from this. <laughs> maybe this is just where we're at. Yeah. Okay. So Strong Woman is here. She more or less knocks Catherine out to sweet and delivers her to Carl's throne room. This is also when we get like the kick in of uh, Howard Shore's score when when the woman's gut coming after her right before she knocks her out and it's like boom, mm. boom, yeah, boom. <laughs> I I would argue that this is among the scariest of the sequences in the film. Like mm-hmm. I know a lot of people talk about Vince Vaughn's torture. I don't necessarily find that scary. I find these opening parts where we really don't have a sense of the world that we're in, mm-hmm. and like there's a huge sense of uncertainty. To me, that's where the scares come from. Again, yeah, this sequence feels the most Nightmare on Elm Street to me. Vince Vaughn's torture feels like a prelude to the torture porn era we were going to get five years later when Hostel came out, or I guess four years later when Saw came out. Yeah, I like that scene sure but yeah it's not scary it's gross exactly because really it's like like we're too busy focusing on his face as he's like screaming you're like "Mm, okay yeah i mean they have some fun work with the sound design but ultimately yeah this this scene of her being stalked looking at all the different victims as you just see this behemoth woman stalking her down this hall Ooh, it Mm. is it is a delightful scene it's it might be one of my favorites in the film yeah So she gets delivered to King Starger. So this is how we're going to distinguish between his young self that Catherine is chasing throughout most of the film. And then this Mm -hmm. kind of embodiment of everything that human Carl envisions himself to be, which is like this king who is all powerful. I love the fact that he's coded as like kind of gender fluid in a lot of the costuming, really exquisite makeup. He wears gowns a lot. Yeah. Like very like regal gowns. I don't know if there's any cultural significance because I know towards the end we get the kind of Japanese cherry blossom snow thing. So yeah. I don't know if there's anything with his outfits that are meant to be of a different culture. But yeah, it, it's it's not quite dresses that he's wearing, but it's just these really wonderful gowns. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're often drawn from real life figures. And apparently it was like people who were in positions of like power and authority. And I think part of it is like a Japanese and part of it is African. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Because really it's like when you think of where they shot and who the costume designer was. It's... But yeah, so the the whole idea is that Carl this is how Carl really envisions himself. Like, this is his ultimate form. If he was given all of the power and the ability to do what he wanted. So, Catherine rightfully freaks out, and she's back in the real world. So that's the end of round one in this film. And eight-minute sequence, by the way. That is crazy! (laughs) (laughs) It feels like 20. No, it feels a lot longer because... it's such a good introduction to this world because as an audience member, you're watching this like what like what am I gonna see here? Like it, the whole allure of the film was like enter the mind of a killer. Like that's yeah. what you're doing, and it's just like what am I gonna see? I would argue that it could have gone even more depraved if they really wanted to dip more into horror stuff, but because this is like a high profile, more um, high concept release, it's not yeah. gonna do that. But it's still plenty nasty what we see. And don't forget that even though this is the year 2000, at this point in horror, 
we were very much in the middle of the second cycle of slasher films. So a movie about adults wasn't going to make a lot of money or it wasn't like considered what horror was doing at the time. So I think they were deliberately not going after the horror crowd because this isn't what horror wanted to see. Well, it's also about a year and a half after Columbine. So I think that like like leading heavily into the violence isn't something the studio was going to want to do anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, Columbine. Yeah. Okay, so back in the real world, we get a little bit of exposition. Basically, Dylan Baker's role in this movie is to tell us things that we need to know about <laughs> the subconscious. And Which, again, though, why don't you, why do you have him and Marianne Jean Baptiste? Like, why don't you just have one person do this role? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe we just <laughs> needed to give all these people work in the year two thousand. <laughs> So we we get this annoying thing where it's like, oh, well, if your body tricks you into convincing that it's real, then you could die when you go into this. So uh, it's, you know, it's helpful because it sets the stakes. But sure, it's nothing that we haven't heard before. Nightmare on Elm Street, baby. You betcha. Uh, so this is the part that I kind of tuned out. It's okay. more or less it's Peter and Catherine bonding while he's also subtly manipulating her into saying like, OK, I know you had a bad experience, but you also have to go back in. Okay, well, in case you missed what he said... No, I missed nothing. I told you. <laughs> Basically, he's so intent on catching this killer because there was a little girl that... So he would work for the DA's office, and there was a little girl who was molested. The molester got off because of... A <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> the molester got off because of, like, fucked up evidence. The night he was released, the girl's parents, I guess, left her at home because that's what you do. As you do. And yeah. they got back, and the molester was, like, at their house sitting on the couch with their little girl... He had split her open, emptied her out, left her heart in the freezer because he thought they might want to keep it. <laughs> and so ever since then, he said, fuck the law system. I'm going to become an FBI agent and uh, catch them myself. That's your three-dimensional character development for uh, Mr. Novak, Vince Vaughn. So as I said, I missed nothing. <laughs> <clears throat> Where does that come back into play? Apart from the fact it, that he's a super diligent FBI agent. It's character development. It's supposed. Uh, okay, okay. Oh had we gotten the uh, had we gotten the original thing for for Catherine with the abortion, which we'll talk about in a bit, <laughs> it would have probably been more of a. They would have played a part into like connecting the two characters, but we right. don't get that. So right. It, it does seem a bit like, oh god, why are we spending time talking about this? Why yeah. do we care? Yeah. Because this scene is also 20 minutes long, is it not? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Look, I'm just really excited to talk about abortions out of the sides of our mouth when we get there. Yes. Like, whoa. whoa. Abortion. Yeah. Uh, so all this to say, she is convinced. Yes, she will give it a second try. So she goes in for round number two. I do like this fake out. Just... If only because at this point we think we know what to expect. So it's a nice subversion where she tries to go in and then she thinks it hasn't worked. And then she's like, little J-Lo in the corner. See, though, it is. But again, and I will admit I've never seen Dreamscape, so I can't comment if it happens in that movie. But this is a trope that all those Nightmare on Elm Street movies use where it's like, oops, we're in a dream. I, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. So... I like it, but it's not original. But don't you like how it immediately plays out? You know, where she oh. looks over and she's like, oh, shit, I'm already here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's not really a change in um, visual is there to signify no. that she's in the world. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I, that that is very good. Yeah. And I think it's, if you want to think about it this way, it's already telling you that she's lost because she can't tell reality from the dream because she's right. like oh shit i'm already here oh wait so we're gonna have trouble in a little bit mm -hmm. 
Okay, so she then finds herself in a glass cage. It's revealed to be upside down. She seems to fall. It goes into slow motion. <sighs> Fucking gorgeous. Like, I'm sorry, it's just, it's so hard to talk about this film and not be like, it's so gorgeous. It's so striking. It's so crazy. Like, it's bubblegum mm-hmm. for the eyes, this movie. A lot of this, too, um, the music video that this is kind of looking at is uh, Madonna's Bedtime Story. I also forgot to mention that all these music videos um, that we're talking about, um, with the exception of the Manson ones, they're directed by Mark Romanek. Okay. And I don't know if you know who that is, but he's a major music video director, um, did a lot of Nine Inch Nails, obviously, but he's also, his only feature film credit is One Hour Photo. Oh, potential stay tuned, because I feel Mm -hmm. like we could easily talk about that movie. Oh, yes. (laughs) I actually quite like it. Like, I I know a lot Mm -hmm. of people do not like the dark Robin Williams triptych. Oh, no, I like it. Give me that. Give me Insomnia. I'm all for it. Yeah. And then the final one is, is it Death to Smoochie that he's in as well? I love Death to Smoochie. Yes. (laughs) No one else likes it, but I love it. (laughs) Not not a lot. I would argue that's the least popular of the three. The other two, at least people will get on board for. (laughs) Death to Smoochie has like the drop dead gorgeous thing where it's like, okay, if you watch it now, it's it's really funny. But like, I think at the time people just weren't ready for the type of humor it was doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People don't like a dark comedy ever. No. (laughs) (laughs) What? You can't make me feel bad and ask me to laugh at it. I'm not Mm -hmm. doing that. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, we get some fun imagery here. She ultimately winds up in Carl's childhood home, where she helps him do some dishes. This is where the clock comes back into play. She gets locked into the closet, and then she watches the sort of unseen father figure. So, like, we don't really get a good look at him, and I think that's also important. Like, he's almost his own mirage that Carl can't face, and Carl gets beaten for playing with toys, and it's actually quite uncomfortable to watch apparently this was emulated uh, trying to emulate um david fincher oh my god no david lynch's blue velvet um, <laughs> okay oh my god very different wrong david <laughs> but but this is where we get the line and again like, it wouldn't really ra- like raise like any eyebrows for people i think but i think as a queer viewer like this is when he tells him i didn't raise no faggot and he yeah. like proceeds to beat his son take him to his room say oh these dolls are everywhere you're some kind of sissy yeah and then i get there was an iron in there, so yeah, then he, like, I mean, we don't see it, but, like, we we know that he, like, burns him with this iron. Definitely hear it, yeah. Again, this is one that, like, I mean, again, I, I wasn't abused when I was a kid, so I can't speak from that perspective, but just being like, oh, like, this is something that our community goes through a lot. Like, as, as we age as children, like, some people do get abused because they are queer, mm-hmm. be it from their parents, or be it from bullies at school, or be it from strangers on the side of the road. And I say it happens to kids, it happens to adults. (laughs) So whether or not you want to read Carl as queer, nevertheless, the implication of the scene is that his father thinks that he might be queer. And he's abusing him just for that reason. And so me watching that, it was like, ugh. It it definitely struck a chord with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This isn't unconventional. Like, I think we're, we're pretty used to seeing this kind of trauma inflicted on people but it's it still hurts and the implication being that even if he wasn't he's being punished for the presumption of being gay is like yeah uh this is very real and it's very hard unfortunately yeah it doesn't really amount to much later because we don't really come back to whatever that was i mean the long and short of it is he was abused by his dad and that's why he's a killer like a little bit yeah it's uh (laughs) pretty much like this equals this pretty much and again like there, there's criticism to be had there and i totally get that but the movie's not interested in addressing that so no 
No. Okay. So she ends up turning around in the closet. This is where we see adult, like regular adult uh, Carl washing a corpse in the bathtub. And we get a little bit of his kind of backstory where he talks about the fact that he had a seizure during his baptism at age six. So that's the origin of the trauma that uh, Dr. Reed was talking about earlier. So hence the water as the big motif. And this is also a reference to a music video. This time one of Sing's own. Um, It's R. REM's Losing My Religion. Um, mm-hmm. The setting for this is very much like the one, like the one room setting of that music video. Yeah, and there's like religious potential abuse situations heavily coded in that song as well. 100%. I mean, yeah, it's about losing my religion. <laughs> it's so funny because for some reason when I was a kid, I stupidly assumed that like religion was a coded word for sex. So I was like, oh, it's about losing your virginity. And then it's like, when you see the video, no. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I mean, but again, with song lyrics, much like film, you can read it any way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, yeah, the video takes a certain approach. It, it's interesting, right? Music videos are a, re- a one particular reading of a song's lyrics, but you right. can also, if you don't watch the video, you can read it any way. So it could be what you're reading, just not in the video. Yeah. Which again, I think is it's why it's so fascinating that this film is driven by music videos. Like it makes sense because it's Sing's mm-hmm. background, but it's also like because this was the heyday of a certain kind of visual medium, it naturally makes sense that it would then flow into narrative features. But I right. I don't know of many other feature films that have been so heavily influenced by like these iconic music videos. Like It just kind of reinforces to me that the music video is a bit of a lost art now. And like, there was a period of time where we were deriving really deep, meaningful pop cultural moments from those videos. Yeah. 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 And we, it doesn't, it doesn't happen as much anymore unless you're something who is like, I'm going to say auteur. Yeah. Like Beyonce or even Lady Gaga. Like when you hear like, I mean, Taylor Swift has music videos, even if you want to go into pop, but like, it's not like that although i actually think mark romanic did the shake it off music video (laughs) yeah i mean like the i think the difference is is that now when you do see an artist make a music video it becomes a kind of sensational event like oh Mm -hmm. this person has deemed it worthwhile to sink millions of dollars into this iconic production um yeah but it tends to only be the biggest of names right like you're not going to have an rem equivalent in 2020 make a music video because it's too expensive (laughs) who's gonna watch it (laughs) who cares Exactly. So this is an interesting bonding moment between Catherine and regular adult Carl, but it doesn't last long. So this is where we get the return of King Starker. He goes backwards into the shadows in the corner of the room, and when he comes back out, he is King Starker. He's got these really gorgeous hair horns. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. want, I was going to try to style my hair that way for this video, but um, you know, I just didn't think I could pull it off. And again, this is kind of where I'm going into queerness for him, because he's very much like a male, realistic Maleficent. So, yeah, I mean, you can read that however you want, but yeah. Sure. I, I, but again, I don't know if I want to read him as queer, because he's a terrible fucking human being. <laughs> I just, I like that there's a sense of almost pomp and circumstance to his most desirable goal. Like, if you can remove the fact that he is obviously a terrible person who murders women and then masturbates over their corpses... 
<gasps> he's a bit of a diva. Yeah. But 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 again though, that that's I mean, in some of our previous episodes we've discussed the implication of like the queer villain and the queer monster. Yeah. And how sometimes it's okay. Like I I like identifying with the villain sometimes, but it's the always the issue of like, okay, well, are they a villain though because they're queer, or are yeah. they a villain that happens to be queer? And unfortunately in this case, it's it's kind of like an offshoot. Like he yeah. is let's say he's queer. But he's he's a villain because of the abuse he suffered because he was queer. So there's like an extra step there. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like a little minor detour roadblock kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, he gets the jump on Catherine and he really surprises her. He scares her. He ends up getting this kind of necklace vice thing around her neck. And at this point, she is lost. But that's also a symbol because that's what he puts on the victims after he gets rid of their bodies earlier in the film. Yeah, there is a lot of like speaking to reality if you're paying attention to like his particular motions and symbols and stuff. Right. So we briefly cut back to the real world. Every once in a while, we'll get a shot of Julia in her dumb cage being like, and she gets wet. And you're like, okay, cool. I know (laughs) you're saying like, you can't you can't swim. (laughs) Cut you out. The scene would have been five minutes, but you only get two because you can't fucking swim. <laughs> so make it work, bitch. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, we, we have to have big, strong Vince Vaughn come in to save little Jennifer Lopez because we're basically still in the 90s. And he, with no training at all, with zero preparedness to take this on, uh, he yeah. jacks in. And so... I don't like it. <laughs> I, well, okay, I don't... Whatever about his like, his character having no experience. It makes no fucking sense. No. But B, this is very much like, okay, our lead actress, our lead character, who's female, now needs rescuing by a big, strong man. Correct. I would have preferred it if it was Marianne Jean-Baptiste going in after her. Yes. Like, and I honestly believe it, that if this film was made nowadays... Uh, if we still had Dylan Baker and Marianne Jean-Baptiste, I do think that it would be like, okay, Marianne, you go in. Well, because that that's a reason to have two of them, right? So one of them yeah. can stay out in case one of them needs to go in, which I think may be the reason why there is two of them. But yeah, it doesn't make any sense for them to send in Vince Vaughn, no. other than the studio was like, no, we need a white man to go in and save the per- the woman of color. <laughs> but today, yeah, we could have two women of color ruling, like, ruling the, 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 the mind of the killer. Yeah. And we don't get that here. No. Yeah, it, it's definitely the thing to me that is, like, the most 2000s about this. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, can we please send in the white male to save the fucking day? And it's yeah. that's not doing the film... That's maybe being a little unfair, considering Jennifer Lopez does save herself in the end. Right. But, but here she needs saving. Yeah. Yeah, so he goes in. Uh, we get some more iconic video music video imagery. So he shows up in trenches, and there's like three identical women who have a kind of like weird poetry moment with him. That that's a rare instance too. I mean, obviously he's used the work of H.R. Geiger to like do some of the set design. Um, this is a reference to a painting called Dawn by Norwegian painter Odd Nerdrum. Again, it's really visually striking. Does it? need to be in here maybe not maybe not so he ends up getting lured into kind of like the magic room it's basically just a giant open room like a a circular room that has a bed in the middle jennifer lopez is here and Catherine has been made up in like carl's sex fantasy so i love 
all of this. Like it is a good look. <laughs> like the, the 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 red like neck brace she has on. Like mm-hmm. oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, this is the kind of semi sadomasochistic sex play lingerie mm-hmm. that we've been seeing. And of course, there's the famous anecdote that comes up whenever you talk about this particular scene, which is that Jennifer Lopez was like, "Hey, can you loosen this collar?" And the answer was no, because it's supposed to hurt. Like you're supposed to be, <laughs> you're supposed to be tortured. So it was very much like if you were going to wear these costumes, you had to go all in. We do. Um. Oh well, not yet. But so okay. So he comes up and he like you know puts the bag over his head. Yeah. He then bags we get him. this intestine thing. Yeah. Yep. Then we get this intestine scene. As gross as this is, I do think the constant cutaways to her mm-hmm. doing her smile, oh. like. It's so creepy. It is so creepy. And she's like, I mean, again, it's, I mean, it's acting, but like, it's just fucking face she's making. Acting! And she's so, she's so good! <laughs> yeah, and it, and I think the people who dismiss Jennifer Lopez in this role aren't paying attention to the differences, like the levels of her performance, because mm-hmm. this is most emphatically not the Catherine that we have seen. And she has no dialogue in this part. No. Like, it is just her in anticipation watching this horrific scene unfold and like getting presumably sexual pleasure out of this yes Uh, it's more implied though right Mm -hmm. because yeah this is one of the few moments in the film where yeah the sexuality is really downplayed except whatever performance d'onofrio is giving here it's like it reminded me of like alice in wonderland almost where it's like a tweedledee or tweedledum but yeah so then we get the great shot of the scissors going in Mm -hmm. he like digs around and boom out comes that intestine yeah and then he plays it like a music box (laughs) oh it's so good and he's doing those yeah (laughs) so uh throughout all of this this is actually i think also where the film makes really good use of its sound design so Mm -hmm. i i've been telling you trace that ever since i moved the furniture around in my apartment my tv is very far away from the couch and sometimes i'm like i need subtitles i can't hear what's happening and i definitely (laughs) cranked the volume at this part because i was like i can't even hear what vince vaughn is saying like what is he yelling at her trying to get her to wake up and then i realized oh it's actually because they muted the sound design because we're supposed to be back in Catherine's point of view and he's breaking into like breaking through the barriers that carl kingstarker yeah has put up and it's only when she starts to hear him because he connects with her that we get the sound back at full volume the way he connects with her is by regaling a tale because before he goes in mary jean baptiste is like you read her file you know her to say something personal yeah. okay well it would really they know each of... other so well after the two hours <laughs> so he's like oh your your brother got in a car crash and had a coma and he died like that's apparently why she's so obsessed with comas right the original idea for this scene. So he was supposed to remind Catherine that she had an abortion in college and her res- and her resulting guilt and regret led her to becoming a child psychologist. There are two versions as to why this didn't go through. So one is that test audiences didn't like this scene because it arguably made Catherine less sympathetic as a protagonist because she willingly went through an abortion. I'm sorry, Fuck but that. that is the most American fucking response I've ever mm-hmm. heard. And you guys are dumb. Um, but, uh, Singh in the commentary says, he goes, and I, and I quote, nobody would let me do it, so I shot it anyway, and, um, had him screen it. Uh, he, and I'm guessing this is maybe the head of New Line, 
He really fought me on it, but after he did, he loved it. But too many folks in power were offended by it, so they changed it. So yeah. th- it's either test audiences didn't like it, or the studio heads didn't like it, or maybe it was both. Right. I just think it's so funny that it's like, oh, your entire, like, care- your protagonist yeah. can be deemed unlikable simply by the fact that she had an abortion in college. It's so yeah. fucked up. Yeah. And I actually would have... So you mentioned that you you thought it might have been a bad idea to include... Is it too on the nose for you? Is, oh, she had an abortion, so she really likes kids now? I just don't think the connection is as strong as giving her a familial piece, right? Like, because the whole thing is that she is young and inexperienced, but there's something about her. Like, Dylan Baker literally says she's got something that the other people that we tried to do this program with don't have. So I think it makes sense to root that in a sense of shared trauma, because this movie is all about trauma. So mm-hmm. I I don't know that that would have come through quite as clearly if you just said, oh, it's because she had an abortion. So she because mm-hmm. it's like, like what? Having an abortion doesn't make you love kids. It doesn't make you unable to have kids most of the time. So I just don't think the connections are strong. I agree. I, I do agree. But of course, both of us as men, like yeah. neither one of us are capable of having an abortion. And not, we have not had an abortion. So we can't really know the emotional toll that it would take on a woman and like what it would, it, it, how it would inform her later life. But that being said, I mean, it can affect you in a variety of different ways, like any kind of traumatic incident could. Yeah, fair. And I'm going to briefly put the little asterisks at the top, which is to say that some men can have pregnancies and can't give birth. So. Oh, right. Sorry. No, it's fine. Nice. It's it's one of those things that we're we're constantly renegotiating because. We live in a great world where all of that shit can now happen. Yay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also is like trying to counteract years of ingrained bullshit that society has fed us. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So all this to say, Catherine's backstory does not come into play here. It is her brother. <laughs> so she breaks the spell and she and Peter end up running away and uh, they encounter young Carl. They discover... a. A kind of visual signifier. I still don't really understand how this helps them to understand where Julia is being I, kept. I didn't either. And the visuals here are back to Madonna's bedtime story because there's yes. the weird cube things. Um, he sees a symbol. Yeah. And that that makes him connect it to something. I don't really know. Yeah, so the symbol is replicated from the table that he lays the bodies on in his basement. So I guess seeing that in this dream unconscious world is enough to cue him to say, oh, okay, that's the important piece because it's showing up here. That means it's important in the real world. So that's what cues him to say, we need to do the history on where this symbol comes from. But then we get this like weird accordion version Uh, of King Starger. Yeah. So this was apparently D'Onofrio. Like he, he came up with these movements and it's interesting because apparently Singh talks about this film as an opera a lot. Mm -hmm. And he very much references like what D'Onofrio brings to the table, particularly in this scene is that sense of the operatic. Yeah. And I think that's also because one of the complaints about the film was that it wasn't very subtle. There was no nuance. And he used the opera excuse as a way to be like, well, operas aren't subtle. Like operas are loud and they're very animated and cartoonish. That's what this movie is. Maybe the issue is that because of what the subject matter is, people had an issue with that. Right. But maybe because we're genre fans, like it, it works for us. I don't know. Yeah. I also just, I don't agree. I think that there's lots of subtlety in this film, but there's also a lot of things that are very on the surface. 
And typically, if you're thinking about films that don't do well with test audiences, it's films that are like, if you're not straightforward enough, your test audience will be like, I don't get it. It's confusing. So like the fact that a criticism is that it was. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, come on, people like you can't have it both ways. It, you can't <laughs> want it to be subtle, but also then say, oh, it also needs to be on the nose. Like, come on. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, so they've got what they needed, and young Carl gets abducted by King Starger, and Catherine is very upset, and Vince Vaughn is like, who fucking cares? We got what we needed, man power! <laughs> so they're back in the railroad. <laughs> okay, so at this point, this is where Julia's cell begins to fill with water, so the time is up. They need to, <laughs> They need to get to her before she drowns, so they... Send Peter off on his cop adventure. He flies off in a helicopter. He contacts Dean Norris and they track the thing and they go and wow, uh, who could fucking and, and, care? Th- th- <laughs> th- but this this also feels very silent. Like, this is yeah. when the score kicks in when it's like it's like a slow motion helicopter and it's like Boo! Yeah. So. Yeah, because we're we're desperately meant to care about this woman we know nothing about from this character that we also don't really know much about who really wants to get to her in time. Oh my gosh. And all the rest of us are just like, hi, can we go back to Catherine? Wait, which they do. <laughs> which they do, thankfully. But but it is intercut. Like, her rescuing slash murdering um, young Starger yeah. is intercut with the scenes of them rescuing uh, Julia Hickson. Yeah. That is her name. That is her name. <laughs> Correct. She of the lifeguard who can't spell. The lifeguard. <laughs> Yeah, and and of course the visual imagery is meant to parallel each other. Like, they're on similar journeys to rescue these people. So Catherine has to save mm-hmm. young Carl, and Peter has to save the lifeguard. Yeah. Which makes it sound like a, an aborted season of, uh, like, heroes. Save the lifeguard! Save, save the, the world! world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so at this point, Catherine decides that she's going to reverse the feat, which is what she had suggested doing with edward so she locks out dylan baker she locks out marianne jean baptiste and she goes back in for another round only this time carl is going to come into her world and which they've primed us for because they the whole beginning they didn't want edward to come into her mind and blah 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 blah. it's dangerous whatever yeah which we're just kind of meant to say yes okay we will go along with that so we cut to this final kind of what do we call it a tableau in a way so she is now outfitted as a mother Teresa nun and it's important to note that the color scheme has been reversed so whenever carl's in control it's a lot of reds whereas here Mm -hmm. it's a lot of like whites and blues so like blues and pinks yeah so softer colors and they're meant to convey that like oh okay catherine is in control and also she is a calming figure so that's why she's trying to to connect with young carl in this situation right and that works for a little bit <laughs> i do love the setting though i mean it, it it reminds me of i don't know if you've seen the movie quite on um from like the 60s it's like a japanese anthology film but there's a whole setting of the snow so it's just like this with cherry blossoms basically yeah <laughs> isn't it bad that like as dumb north americans were basically like oh a bit of snow and cherry blossoms it's very I japanese mean, well okay no i looked this up because i was like i think it's a little interesting that her mind who's um i think she's i think jennifer lopez is puerto rican yeah. um that her the inside of her mind is a japanese setting but it, cherry blossoms are like the official flower of japan and they're primarily seen in like taiwan japan like those areas okay um so i found it interesting that the inside of her mind was 
essentially like a snowy Japan. Oh my god, who knew the 2000s level J-Lo was like culturally appropriate? (laughs) (laughs) I think if nothing else, this to me speaks to how much of a collaborative effort it was between the costuming and then some of the visual signifiers that Tarsen Singh ended up coming into. I mean, cause, yeah, and because the costumer was, I mean, I don't know the exact Asian descent, but it was a person of Asian descent. Yeah, so she connects with young Carl. We get some really interesting visual, like, vines creeping around the edges, which to me has always suggested that, like, she's making contact and it's working. Like, it's almost flowery and romantic and, like, the end of a Disney movie. The visual also is taken right out of his Losing My Religion video. Like, there, it is like, yeah, there's like a whole shot of someone with this gold vine thing. But of course, in that, in the music video, it's impractical. In this, it is CGI. (laughs) Yeah, and I I would argue that it looks okay. It didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, it looks fake, but I feel like it's fake in a way that reinforces what he's trying to achieve. You know, compare this to the weird rainbow xyloscope kind of look of when vince vaughn goes into oh the yeah and i was like holy fucking no. late 90s cgi oh my the, god no the, the the entering of the mine for j-lo for the, the first time she goes in that looks mostly okay. okay the the vince vaughn one is like 30 seconds it's long so too long a bunch of needless cgi yeah. I, oh yeah i can't believe we didn't comment on that that yeah that looks bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely reminded me of that late 90s propensity to imagine that the future was always going to be VR in simulations. And you get stuff like Hackers and Johnny Mnemonic, where the entering into a virtual reality simulation is basically just like, oh, okay, we shit out a colored tube and like spun a camera around in it for 30 seconds. Right, right. It's, it's not a good look. It has not aged well. <laughs> we'll put it that way. I don't think it looked good in 2000. It just definitely does not look good in 2020. No, no. Uh, okay, so so this is working. We've got these beautiful vines. It's almost romantic. It's very, like, it's warm, right? And then the vines start to retreat, and you're like, ah, shit, here we go. So this is when young Carl says, he's here, and the pool becomes King Starger's head and cape. It's really, really cool. <laughs> oh, man. And he looks like somewhere between like a reptilian and a god. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. goddamn, this movie with its visuals. Just A+. Well, plus. Yeah, it, it appears, and yeah, he just comes out with just that cape. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, again, I love a cape. Love a cape. We're good. <laughs> again, diva worship, give me a cape. Yeah. <laughs> diva! <laughs> okay, so at this point... It's interesting because I've seen people suggest that with the arrival of King Starger, he takes control because it's like we see the bugs that appear on young Carl. But I would like people have read J-Lo's final costume change into the warrior as something that he does, like he turns her into this. And I never saw it that way. No, This is her activating like full bitch mode. Well, because I, I think he takes control when he comes out, but yeah. then her changing costume is her taking control back. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, that's what, what I always took it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like... Those who... people are wrong. <laughs> okay, good. I was like, am I crazy? Am I... No. Bananas? And it's... I, I love this warrior transformation for her. I think yeah. it's... It, a, looks fantastic. Again, looks um, great. Yeah. And it's just really fun. I think that the death scene goes on a little bit too long. 
I actually could have done with more of this like battle stuff. Like I appreciate yeah. that he doesn't want to turn it into an action film. Like there there was talk about like some of the action sequences being longer and more bombastic and I think he really fought against that. But see, okay, but imagine like again, I mean maybe this would make it worse, but like we have this Japanese we assume setting. Right. If we get kind of like a pseudo samurai battle uh, with like okay. she has a sword. Yes. Like some, something like the Kill Bill volume 1, mm. uh The Bride and Obanishii, like something like that i mean but you know more violent right um like oh that would have been cool i think i mean but i can see why he wanted to avoid that sure yeah did you appreciate that she crucifies him with her arrows mm-hmm. yeah sure did just to make sure that everybody understands we're still dealing with some of that religious guilt a lot of religious shit there um so okay i want to bring the abortion back though because the way that oh, she okay. resolves this <laughs> well no be- she-, she has to kill this child Mm-hmm. She has to drown the, the young the young Starger to set him free and kill him. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. If we have an abortion in her backstory, she is now forced to kill another, another child. child. And I, I think that's more thematically relevant, and it's actually more beautiful or poignant, right. if you will, for her character. What's interesting is that I don't think people see that... Like, people see this as an act of mercy. Mm-hmm. So to conflate that with an abortion is yeah. like i i can't help but also wonder if that's maybe where some of the less than positive feedback he was receiving from either test audiences or higher ups came from it's entirely possible and of course we're not going to get into pro-life pro-choice debate here because i mean it just all depends on how you view the fetus that she would have aborted but be it like a living child whatever we're not gonna get into it yeah i was gonna say no there's no debate because it's a woman's choice it's always a woman's choice and fuck you if you think you have designs on somebody else's body Oh, no, I just think that we're not going to talk about this. Oh, because I see. I just okay. like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, I agree with you, but I, like, we're not going to talk about it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I, do, I do get it, but yeah, I, I, I still just kind of think it would have been a bit more poetic. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, now that we've talked it through, I'm inclined to agree with you, but I can see why they maybe made the less controversial choice. But she clearly regretted having, let's say she had the abortion, she regretted having the abortion. She also doesn't want to kill this child. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's not killing him because he's not, his exist. But, oh, that's kind of also another thing, right? Where it's like, oh, the kid doesn't exist, mm-hmm. but then does the kid for the abortion really exist? Blah, 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 blah. Um, I know. Come back to me. Come back to me. I'm, I know. I'm like going on this tailspin of like, oh, I'm just realizing all this. But I think it would have been like another thing where she's like, okay, I don't want to do this, but I have to as yeah. a necessary evil of sorts. Yeah, and in this case, it's because, of course, the two are linked. So the the child that he was and the villain that he has become. And what's interesting, too, is like we never see adult Carl in his regular form. Like we see him for that one brief moment by the bathtub. And that's the whole that's the only instance we see of him in this entire dream world. So you're either he's one or the other in this case. Right. And to get rid of one, you have to kill the other. So that's what she does. She drowns young Carl, thereby putting him to rest. And at the same time, we see Peter rescuing Julia and he's reassuring her and she's holding onto him like a child would because she's a lifeguard who can't swim. (laughs) (laughs) You're a lifeguard who can't swim. That's way (laughs) harsh, Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and this is, I basically, like, my notes just end here. I know that there is a coda where she adopts the fucking dog and she goes to see Peter. And I'm just so glad that they don't kiss. They, oh yeah, that's terrible. Um, also, they would not let her keep that dog. Absolutely I not. No. I don't think that's a thing. Yeah, they have that whole line where it's like, um, 
Oh, because she shows up at the site and they're like, oh, that's kind of strange. And she's like, she's keeping the dog, man. I'd say strange is par for the course. She's so weird. She's got glasses and a ponytail. Oh my god, she's got a weird licorice blood suit that she uses to go into people's minds. She's weird. <laughs> they did add the coda, though, with her going back to Edward. Oh, okay. I actually think that's smart. That does yeah. work. Yeah, well, because they realized that they didn't have an ending for that. And so they mm-hmm. were like, oh, we should probably do that. <laughs> we, we should maybe address the fact that she's also good at her actual job, not just <laughs> killing serial killers. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the other thing, too, right? She essentially commits murder. Like, I yeah. don't, like there's this whole thing where, yeah, like, the the FBI isn't officially recognizing the, the, the research. They're like, oh no, you gave Vince Vaughn hallucinatory drugs, which triggered his memory of where the bo- of where Julia Hickson was. And you're like, yeah. okay. I mean, but is I that a detail we really needed to include in this? Oh. I mean, I was just more like, concerned with the fact that she did murder this guy. I mean, like, they can't prove, they can't it, prove it because, it. like, yeah. Possible deniability. <laughs> I didn't do it. I was asleep the whole time, officer. I was on drugs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it ends uh, with that. And it's, I, I still like, I mean, again, we've addressed a lot of this movie's flaws, but I still think that the, the, the its strengths far outweigh any of its shortcomings. Yeah, I am inclined to agree. Now, I remember at the time, it was very much like, if this movie does well, do you think they'll make a sequel? Which, of course, they obviously never do. No, they, I, they did I, make a sequel. Wait, what? It, there's a straight-to-DVD sequel called The Cell 2. Wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it came out like in 07 or 08. I haven't seen it. By all accounts, it's terrible. Oh, of course it's um, terrible. It's, it's, it's not like a straight... It's it's an unrelated sequel. Right. But it is called The Cell 2. <laughs> wow. I never knew. Because honestly, part of me was like, I could see them trying to do this again, but it would... Like, you couldn't bring in a new serial killer and a new ticking clock, because that would just be stupid. But that's your procedural. Like, if this was a TV show, that's what it would be, right? It would be a new killer, a new mind every week. Yes, and Um, Holly Hunter and Sigourney Weaver would be the people that they would ask to consult. Oh my god, can you imagine that crossover, though? That'd be really cool. And then Julia, because at this point, Jodie Foster's not doing it, so Julianne Moore would come in as Clary Starling. Right, right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Hi, Jodie, we'd really love you to come back and play Clary. So, Jodie, Jodie, I I think we got disconnected. (laughs) Can you just get me Julianne on the other line? (laughs) I'll do it. It's just a really... I want to say fun movie, but it's it's also like a fun movie about some really fucked up things. I really admire the artistry here. I think Singh is a great director. I do want to go watch The Fall now because I haven't seen it, but... Yeah. It's great in terms of the visuals. Lee Pace is amazing. And, you know, I fucking love a tall gay man, so bring on yeah. that. Drink a water. But um, it, I think it's emotionally much more mature. So it it just you feel things when you watch it, even though it doesn't have a super strong narrative. Like, it's still a lot of kind of dream logic-y stuff. Like, yeah. But all that to say, if you like The Cell, The Fall is a good companion to it. I mean, happy 20th, happy late 20th, The Cell. You right. hold up. You hold up. Those visuals <laughs> look fucking amazing to this day. Agreed. Um. So yeah, before we wrap this up, we just wanted to kind of thank Nightstream Film Festival again. We really yes. appreciate y'all taking the time to... well. I mean, for inviting us. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there was time spent on us, but sure. you know, for letting us come and do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you like us, please check us out. We've got our socials on at Horrorqueers on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can find the podcast either at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcast or pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that jazz. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 
on that note, I think we can cross out the cell. Yes, and cross out horror queers. You've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more.